Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to Luke 17. Luke 17. We have been working our way through this gospel of our Lord. And we're picking up this morning with verse 20 in Luke 17. Begin reading with me there. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods and in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray together. Lord God, this is Your holy Word, and we need Your Spirit, Lord, to illumine our minds and our hearts to understand it. Guide us now in Your truth. Grant us, Lord, that insight, that understanding. But more than that, Lord, let us remember that our hope always lies in Jesus Christ. That whatever may fall, Lord, Whether we find ourselves in the end times or not, Christ is the love of life, the goal of life, our hope of life. In His name we pray, amen. You know, the end times is one of those subjects that most Christians really are curious about, and they often make requests, you know, request, Pastor, when are you going to teach us through the book of Revelation and those kind of things? And it's so interesting because so many things surrounding the end times are, are mysterious, right? Apocryphal language in the Bible is, is difficult to interpret, and there are many views about the timing of Christ's return, the events of the tribulation, the nature of the millennial reign of Christ, the process of the final judgment. In our text this morning, 
Jesus teaches us about some of these things. And we're going to be diving into the subject more when we get to Luke 21. Luke 21 really corresponds to what is known as Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And it's in those passages where Jesus teaches much more in depth about the end times. But here in Luke 17, he gives us a taste of these things. The core question Jesus is answering in this passage is this. When will the king of heaven make this broken world right? And when, or excuse me, what will that time look like? That's what Jesus is answering this morning. Now, ironically, this, it's a question from Jesus' religious opponents that sparks this time of teaching. The Pharisees rightly believed that God was going to fulfill his promise and establish his eternal kingdom with the Messiah who would come from the line of David. The glaring problem with what they believed was that they thought it was going to be a kingdom of earthly glory and earthly power where national Israel was restored to its position of global prominence. From their perspective, the Pharisees looked around at what life was like in Israel during their time and they thought to themselves, we're still under the oppression, oppression of Rome. And since Jesus is not using his power to go to war against Rome, there's no way that he could be the Messiah. But, you know what? If this Jesus does happen to be a prophet of God, maybe he can tell us when the real Messiah is going to come and usher in the kingdom. So that's why the Pharisees asked Jesus this question. Jesus responded by telling them that the way they were looking for the kingdom was all wrong. You see, the kingdom of God was first and foremost a spiritual kingdom. So it wasn't going to come with all the pomp and circumstance and large armies and epic battles in a worldly physical manner which they would be able to observe. Anytime someone would stand up against Rome, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they would say, look, look, there it is. Maybe that's him. Or, or hey, maybe it's that guy over there. But on the part of the religious leaders, it was always just a guess. They were so hardened in their hearts and so set in their own perspective that they failed to see that the kingdom of God had come and that it had come in Jesus. In fact, the divine king himself was the one who was standing right in their midst answering their questions. That is why Jesus said to them in verse 21, For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus, even here, is trying to get the Pharisees to say, Look, I am the king. The kingdom is here. But they couldn't see it. They wouldn't see it. And so the Pharisees are the prime example of the truth that Jesus is about to teach. Human depravity and sinfulness make us stubbornly oblivious to his person, his kingdom, and even the fact of his second coming. And when the day of Jesus' return comes, it will be too late for those who do not believe to escape God's wrath. So let's go ahead and walk through this text, consider some truths about the return of Christ. First of all, Christ's second coming will be globally apparent. Christ's second coming will be globally apparent. In verse 22, we see Jesus shift from speaking to the Pharisees to speaking to his men. 
The question that was asked by the religious leaders had created an opportunity for him to prepare his disciples and by extension to prepare us for the future. All of the disciples of Jesus were going to experience persecution and violence against the Christian faith in the years and decades ahead. Most of them would be executed for proclaiming the gospel. Indeed, John, the Apostle John, is the only one that lived a long life, and he lived a long life only to be boiled in oil, and then he survived that to be exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. All the disciples died martyrs' deaths. And so Jesus wanted them to understand that they were not going to see his return in their lifetime. If we go down to verse 25, we see that in suffering, they would identify with Jesus. Jesus said, before any of these things happen, I first must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. When Jesus spoke these words, he was just weeks away from being betrayed and tortured and executed on a Roman cross. So his disciples were about to see a very visceral demonstration of just how ferociously the world would hate them. Now, if we go back to verse 23, Jesus also warned them that there would be deceivers. There would be false teachers and prophets who would specifically try to confuse people by claiming that Christ had come to some hidden place. And indeed, we see in the early centuries of church history, there were some small religious sects and monastic communities that separated themselves from surrounding culture. And they believed that when Christ returned, he would come first to their small little enclave to reward them for their faithfulness. Jesus warned his disciples against this perspective. He told them that deceivers would try to lead them astray with false expectations, but they were not to be believed. Christ was not going to return to some hidden place. The first time he came, he came in humility to the small nation of Israel, but when he comes again, his arrival will be absolutely unmistakable to every single person on the planet. That's why he says in verse 24, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. You know, I I grew up in Florida where literally, you know, there are thunderstorms, lightning storms almost every day, especially during the summer. And of course, you have the phenomenon of, of hurricanes that's much more common. And you've probably seen it too. You can have storms that are, that are so violent, that where there's so much lightning, that you literally see streaks of lightning lighting up the entire night sky. Jesus likens his return to that reality. Christ is one day going to return in a storm of judgment, manifesting a splendor of light that will terrify the wicked of the earth. And his return is going to be obvious and unmistakable to everyone. And this fits what what it says in Acts 1.11. In Acts 1.11, after the disciples watched Jesus ascend into the sky and into a cloud, two angels appeared next to them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Revelation 1 verse 7 also says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
And so the return of Christ in power and glory, bursting through the heavens in blazing light, will fill the wicked of the earth with horror as they realize the moment of their judgment has come. Now, this brings us to what is a critical question and what is often debated in theological circles. You know, we talk about when Jesus will return, and we ask the question, when will Christ return? Will he return before that time of the tribulation or at the end of that time of the tribulation? And and this has been debated especially in the last century and a half. This is the difference between what is referred to as a pre-tribulational rapture and a post-tribulational rapture. A pre-tribulational rapture position is based on four main arguments. Since the tribulation will be a time when God's wrath is intensely poured out on the earth, the church doesn't belong here. Christians are God's children. We have been spared from the wrath of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and thus it would not be appropriate for God's children to suffer through the judgments of the Great Tribulation. Those who believe this view also believe that the promise of Revelation 3.10 from God to the church at Philadelphia is specifically a promise to the entire church. Revelation 3.10 says, Because you have kept my words about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This view also, in their view, makes it more possible to believe that Christ could come at any moment. If the tribulation hasn't begun yet, then we can truly say that this is going to be a surprise, that there are no great signs already taking place in the time of the tribulation. And finally, they believe that any references to believers being on the earth during the time of the tribulation are either references to those who have come to faith after the tribulation has begun, but they also believe it principally refers to the ingathering of the Jewish nation. It refers to Jews that will come to Christ during the time of the tribulation because the church has already been raptured out and is in heaven with the Lord Jesus. The post-tribulational rapture position is based on four main arguments as well, and they really reciprocate those that are set about by a pre-tribulational rapture. And the first is this, there is no clear or explicit teaching in Scripture stating that the church will be taken out of the world before the tribulation. Revelation 3.10, that promise made to the church at Philadelphia, is a statement made to a specific church in that time. But even if it is referring to the Great Tribulation, the idea that God would keep them or guard them from trial does not mean he would remove them from the presence of those trials. In fact, if we take what the New Testament says as a whole about suffering, God promises that he will strengthen and preserve his people through persecution and suffering, not that he will remove us from them. This, is a, this goes with the corresponding truth that we don't really see that Scripture teaches anywhere the idea of a secret return of Christ. The return of Christ is always described as a public event. There's a loud trumpet call to gather the elect in Matthew 24, 31. There's a sound of the trumpet of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. The last trumpet when our bodies are changed in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 15 through 51 and 52. And all of those mentions of the trumpet seem to be referring to the same trumpet. Now again, those who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture believe that, well, only the church, only the people of God will hear that trumpet of Christ. 
But really, the context of those verses seems that it's a global announcement, not just a church announcement. As Jesus says here, his return will be like lightning which flashes from the east to the west. So any idea of a secret return of Christ to to snatch away his church doesn't seem to have a grounding in Scripture. I mean, listen to the words again of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 that I read earlier. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Again, that seems to be a globally apparent phenomenon. A third thing is if you follow the order of Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Jesus clearly speaks of his return coming after the time of tribulation. Again, he is preparing his disciples for this event, not just a remnant of Jews, And in reading through Revelation, we definitely see references to believers who are present in those days, and they're not referred to as only being Jews. Many of them are people of all nations who are martyred for not worshiping the beast and not taking his number upon their hand or head. In reality, prior to the development uh, uh, under the Englishman Darby of dispensationalism in the mid-1800s, the historic teaching of the church has always been that the rapture would come at the end of the tribulation. The idea that Christ could come at any time is also still preserved even in this form, even in this understanding. You know, there are texts that mention the day of the Lord coming like a thief in the night, referring to God's judgment being visited upon men quickly and without warning. But as we look at those passages, what we understand those passages teaching is that it's a matter of suddenness, not secrecy. Again, going into 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And so the signs that are given in Matthew 24 and 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation will be fulfilled during the time of the tribulation. And we are, as God's people, to be expectant and ready as we see the day of the Lord draw near. But even though the church will see these signs completed, we still do not know the day nor the hour. Even if if Jesus' return comes at the end of the tribulation, it will still be with great suddenness, exactly in accordance with the text. Now, the biggest challenge people have with this view, right, because evangelicalism as a whole in the United States, if we go back historically, you know, to the Schofield Reference Bible and the Ryrie Study Bible and the Left Behind movies, we've really popularized this idea of a pre-tribulational rapture, of the church being taken out before the tribulation. And the biggest question that believers often has is, Pastor Sean, would Jesus really leave his beloved bride to go through such a terrible time of judgment? And I would answer that by just directing us back to Scripture. There are times in Scripture where God miraculously rescues His people from impending judgment. You think of when God led the people of Israel to the Red Sea and how He split the sea to deliver them in miraculous fashion from the Egyptian army. You think of the story of Gideon and how God took just a a small army of 300 Israelites and used them to defeat an army of 120,000. 
But more often, more often what we see in Scripture is God protecting and strengthening and refining His people through times of suffering. Remember that the people of Israel, God's chosen people when they were enslaved in Egypt, they had to endure the first nine of the ten plagues that fell upon the Egyptians. And in the tenth plague, they were still present for that. They had to mark their homes with the blood of the scapegoat, with the, with the blood of the lamb, rather, so that the killing angel would pass over them. You think about uh, uh, the righteous remnant of Israel. They were taken into captivity right along with idolatrous Israel when God's judgment was poured out on his people. You think about during that captivity, you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were not saved from Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. The Lord was with them in the furnace, keeping them from harm. Jesus said to us in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now those two references in John are not specifically referring to the end times, but they do refer to a principle. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus has rescued us from eternal condemnation and he will bring us into his presence in glory. In comparison to his reward, the worst of our sufferings here are but light and momentary troubles. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 13 say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. One thing is taught throughout Scripture, brothers and sisters, and that is that we have a Savior who has borne the wrath of God for us who will cause and help his people to endure and be protected through any times of trial or suffering or wrath or tribulation that may befall the world. And that's not just true for the future. That is true even now. When we go through times of trial and suffering and difficulty, when the world hates us, when the world belittles our faith, when we ourselves are singled out, perhaps even with our own families, for the foolishness of believing in Christ, we're to understand in those moments, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, we are blessed when men revile and reject us and persecute us. We are blessed. He is a faithful Savior who has borne all of God's wrath for His children. And He is the same Savior who will give strength and mercy and protect and keep through any trial or suffering or wrath that comes upon this world. We trust in Jesus. That takes me to my second point. Christ's second coming will take the world by surprise. Christ's second coming will take the world by surprise. As we come to verse 26, Jesus uses the historical accounts of what happened in the days of Noah and the flood and what happened with Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah to illustrate the, the indifference of the world to his return. You know, in Genesis 6, the wickedness of man had grown to be so great on the earth that God decided that he was going to remove mankind from the face of the earth altogether. But in the midst of that utterly wicked generation, there was Noah a man who found favor with God. 
Noah knew that there was going to be a worldwide flood because in Genesis 6, 13, God told him. And God told him to build the ark. He told Noah that he was going to bring an end to all flesh. And so Noah was obedient, and he began building the ark. Noah knew what was coming, and he acted in faith accordingly. But the wicked people at Noah's time, they were just living their lives like normal. They were continuing on their wicked way. Look at verse 27. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Noah and his family were ready, but everyone else was carrying on oblivious to the threat of judgment. 2 Peter 2.5 identifies Noah as a preacher of righteousness. So even as Noah preached to them, and even as they had one of the largest structures ever built at that time, standing in front of them for decades, think about that for me, the people in Noah's day saw him building this ark, and, and scholars, archaeologists look at the time period and everything, they think it would take one man and his family, and maybe some helpers, I don't know, but one man and his family, it would take somewhere between 40 and 80 years for him to build the ark. And so Noah is a preacher of righteousness. He's building this massive structure in front, of them, in front of them, telling them that the wrath of God is coming. And these people went right on like nothing was going to befall them. They didn't concern themselves with the message at all because their hearts were hardened. It, it was the same way in Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verses 28 and 29. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Sodom and Gomorrah were the twin cities of sexual debauchery. God had determined to wipe them off the face of the earth by raining down fire upon them. But they continued with all their normal activities. The day before their destruction, God sent two angels into town to save Lot and his family. Every single man in, in that city came to sexually abuse these visitors. And God, even on that day before, struck every man in the city blind for it. You would think that after such a thing, these people would get the message that they would repent, or at least they would flee. But they didn't. And the next day, as Lot and his family fled, these cities were utterly destroyed by a rain of fire. Jesus says in verse 30, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You know, think about that with me, brothers and sisters. Think, think about even what we see on the news today and how our world reacts to natural disasters and phenomena. During the time of tribulation, there's going to be massive natural disasters. There's going to be cosmic anomalies. There's going to be plagues and famines and wars and governmental collapse and abuse of power by world leaders and the rise of the Antichrist. All of these things are going to happen. And just like the days of Noah and the days of Lot, the world is going to look at those things and ignore them or explain them away. We're going to see biblical things taking place during this end time. And the world is going to look at those things and say, oh, well, you know, there's, there's all these wars and rumors of wars. We just need to sanction those countries through the United Nations. Oh, well, you know, those, those fires and those famines and those tsunamis, it's because of climate change. We just, need to, we just need to give more attention to the climate and those things won't happen. Or how about this? There's a plague that affects all of mankind. Well, we just, we've just got to develop the right vaccine and shut everything down and wear masks and gloves and drink elderberry syrup until this plague is over. 
Well, the stars are falling from the sky. Oh, maybe aliens have it out for us. The world is going to do anything and everything to explain away the judgment of God when it comes. And when Jesus does finally split the sky in judgment, they are going to be taken utterly by surprise. The wicked will be swept away to hell in the final judgment because they refuse to heed the warnings and see the signs. Most people in this world do not understand. Most people in this world dismiss the Bible and the very kind of preaching that I'm doing today. They dismiss it as foolishness and nonsense. Most people refuse to repent of their wickedness and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation because that's what the sinful human heart naturally does. It rejects the Lord Jesus and His truth. But one day... One day, every person on the planet is going to look and see the sky split and Jesus return. One day, every person that has ever lived is going to stand before the throne of God in judgment. And those who do not believe are going to be eternally condemned to the lake of fire. And then they will know Every person who goes into hell will go with perfect understanding and a complete inability to alter their eternal damnation. And that is why they will weep and gnash their teeth throughout all eternity. Brothers and sisters, that is why we rejoice in Christ Christ has bore the wrath of God in our stead so that we are spared from the wrath of God. Jesus has borne the mocking and the rejection of men. Jesus has borne the rejection of his own, the own people, the, the religious establishment that was supposedly founded upon his own word. He has looked upon a people that literally were mocking him in his pain on the cross as he bore God's wrath for sin. Jesus has done this so that we can be spared from this wrath to come. And I would say very clearly to any of you who are here this morning in the sound of my voice who are without Christ, there's one way of salvation. There's one way to be spared from this eternal wrath of God for your sin. And that is by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. All of us are sinners. All we need to do is look at God's law and we see how God's own law bears testimony to our depravity, our sinfulness. But Jesus has come. He kept the law for us. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. And all who believe in him shall be forgiven and have eternal life. If you would be spared the wrath to come, know that you are spared by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. That takes me to my final point here. Christ's second coming will reveal who has true faith. As we pick up with verse 31, Jesus turns his attention back to instructing those who profess to be his disciples. He says, you know, when that day of judgment comes, don't be so foolish as to worry about your material possessions. 1 Peter 3.10 tells us everything here is going to burn. 
So don't run back to your house to get your wallet and your flash drive with all your family photos. Don't speed home from work, you know, to make sure that the oven's turned off and the, and the water's shut down and that grandma's okay. If you are tempted towards earthly goods and concerns during that time, verse 32, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. You know, if you go back to the story in Genesis 19, the two angels of the Lord had physically removed Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah. They were delaying, and the angels said, no, we've got to get you out of here. So they took Lot and his wife and his two daughters, and they said, we need to get out of here. We need to run. And they told them to run to safety because the fire was about to fall. And as the family was fleeing towards the town of Zoar, what did Lot's wife do? She looked back. She looked longingly back toward her home. And right there on the plain, she turned into a pillar of salt. She is one of the most notable biblical examples of someone who was almost saved, but not quite. She was this close. And Jesus is using her as an example to warn us. We must make sure that we do not have a sinful, selfish attachment to the things and activities of this world. We must make sure that our hearts aren't set on things here when Christ has given us so much more that's awaiting us. And you know, this can happen even in the church today. There are people in the church today who, if they were honest, would say, you know, I, I really hope Jesus takes his time coming back. You know, uh, uh, Jesus, you know, we, we just finally got our dream home, the one we've worked for most of our lives and, and we'd sure like the opportunity to enjoy it for a little while. Or maybe there are those who would say, Lord, I prayed so long to get married. I'm finally about to get married. There's no marriage in heaven. I sure would like to experience this for a little time here. So, you know, if you want to take your time, you know, please, please do. Or maybe, you know, Lord, Father, we finally just got to our retirement. Can't you let us go on our cruise and enjoy a little bit of our pension and investments before we're taken up to glory? What we learn from Lot's wife is that such a longing for the things of this world can be deadly. It can be deadly. What did John say in 1 John 2, verses 15 and following? Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Lot's wife was warned and she and her family were taken out of Sodom before the rain of fire came. She was almost saved. And I just want to stop right there, and I want you to think with me about the terror of what I just said. She was almost saved. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is worth infinitely more than anything or any pleasure this, this world might hold for us. At his right hand are glories forevermore. Let us not look back. 
Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, enduring the cross, despising the shame, to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. Even the good things of this world, hear me, church, brothers, sisters, even the good things of this world can become a deadly snare to your soul if you make them an idol. That's why Jesus says here, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will keep it. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus tells us that on the day of his return, he's going to draw an eternal line of separation right down the middle of humanity. Two people will be in bed. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. As Philip Graham Ryken said, the husband and wife who share the same bed, those who work side by side at the office, people who share almost the exact same situation in life, will find themselves on opposite sides of eternity. One partner will end up in heaven while the other goes to hell. Now some people interpret this to refer to people being separated for judgment, as in Jesus separating the sheep and the goats. I believe this is the rapture that's referred to in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, when it says, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I believe that's what these verses are referring to. However you interpret it, one thing is clear. Jesus knows the hearts of all men and women and children. And when he returns, he will reveal who has true faith and who does not. Who belongs to him and who does not will no longer be up for debate or change. It will be crystal clear and irreversibly set. Now, as we come to the final verse of this passage, it, it seems like the disciples might be confused here, right? In verse 20, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God was going to come. Here at the end, the disciples ask him where. And perhaps they were still thinking about Lot and how Lot was able to get away from judgment to somewhere safe. And so Jesus, in answer to their question, says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, you would not believe how many different people down through church history have offered an opinion on what this means. I could preach another hour exposing you to all those opinions. I won't. Some of you had a little visceral reaction there. Let me just give you what I believe is the right interpretation of all those. I think Jesus here is referring to a sign. You know, if, if you've ever been kind of out in the wide open, you know, out in the woods, out in the wilderness, maybe out in, out in nature... You can be far, far away. You can be miles away from any clear perspective of what is on the ground. But when you see vultures circling up in the sky, you know that something has died and you know where it has died based on where the vultures are. I think in the same way, in the same way that vultures are a telltale sign that death has come, in the same way when we see Christ in the sky, we will know that the judgment of God has come. This pending reality, brothers and sisters, should, should do two things for us as a church. The pending reality of judgment, first of all, serves as one of the motives for obedience, right? The greatest motive for obedience is love for Christ. But among those secondary motives is the impending return of our Savior and Judge. Listen to what Peter says again in 2 Peter 3, verse 10 and following. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Listen, 
since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? And so, church, as we understand the glory of Christ, what he has done to save us, and as we understand the promise, the certain promise of his return, one of the effects it is to have on us is a pursuit of holiness. Knowing, living, living this life, knowing that we will one day answer to our Savior for the life that we have lived, we must be ready. We are called to live as Christians with a sense of this expectancy. And not just because Christ could return, in light of Christ's return, but because one of us could stand before him at any moment. None of us here are even promised tomorrow. I would remind us painfully, my brothers and sisters, that there were people here with us in February of 2022 that are not here with us in February 2023. People that were sitting in these very pews. None of us is promised tomorrow. And we want to live expectantly. And we want to live in light of the fact that at any time, we could be called to account before Christ, our King. We can trust that He will protect and preserve those who are truly His. We have no fear of condemnation, but we are to live expectantly and in righteousness. There's another lesson from this that I'll conclude with. This also is a reminder to us, brothers and sisters, that we don't need to live in fear. And I've clearly set before you a position today, a theological position. I believe whenever the tribulation begins to happen, I believe we as a church are going to have to endure that. But we don't need to be afraid of that. I know even some Christians today that, you know, they can get very wrapped up in the whole political stuff that's going on in our world right now, and they can think Christ is going to return soon, and, you know, and we kind of go into overdrive preparing, you know, I've got to have canned food, and I've got to have this, and I've got to have that, because when the tribulation comes and the meltdown of the nation begins to occur, you know, I have to be ready. I have to take care of myself. I have to take care of my family. And you know what? I have a little bit of a Boy Scout in me, even though I never was a Boy Scout. There's, you know, you, you be prepared. But more, most important, brothers and sisters, is that we're prepared spiritually. And that we understand that we don't need to fear this time of trial. Do you understand that? As awful as it will be, if we are here, we don't need to fear this time of trial. I want to give you probably one of my favorite quotes on the end times ever, and it's from Charles Spurgeon. I want you to listen to this. Spurgeon said, So shall it be when at the last great day we walk among the sons of men calmly and serenely. They will marvel at us. Right? So he's talking about how when the time of tribulation comes, we will be able to walk among men calmly and serenely. They will marvel at us. They will say to us, how is it that you are so joyous? We are alarmed. Our hearts are failing us for fear. But Spurgeon says, we shall take up our wedding hymn, our marriage song. The Lord has come. The Lord has come. Hallelujah. The burning earth shall be the torch to light up the wedding procession. Think of that. The burning earth shall be the torch to light up the wedding procession. 
The quivering of the heavens shall be as it were, but as the dancing of the feet of the angels in those glorious festivities, and the booming and the crashing of the elements shall somehow only help to swell the outburst of praise unto God, the just and terrible, who is our exceeding joy. Brothers and sisters, the burning earth shall be the torch to light up the wedding procession. What a glorious day that will be. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we are, we are struck. We are overwhelmed when we consider your splendor, your power, your holiness and righteousness, your wisdom, your might. Our hope is indeed in you. Lord, we, we confess that day to day we, we do get so focused here so fixed on the immediate needs of the hour, the day. Lord, we fight, we, we, we struggle, we try to commune with you, to walk with you. But if we are honest, Lord, we give very little thought to the end times. Lord, as you have spoken to us through your word, let us be a people that live with that sense of expectancy. Let us cultivate affections, appetites that only heaven can satisfy. Make us a people, Lord, that are faithful in the moment, but who long for the day when we shall be with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.